Hi, it's JP Mac, and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome again to the podcast. Today, I figured I would go back to an, a couple of old favorites. Uh, one of them, if you've been following the podcast for a while, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about uh, the Dutch farmers and the protests that they're having in their country uh, regarding to their country's uh, restriction, their use of nitrogen-based fertilizers. Basically, their government is, are, is making moves that will put about a third of their farms out of business. And so we're going to go over that again um, because there's more protests in the news recently. So we'll talk about that. Also, uh, if you've been following the Dystopic Journal in particular, um, probably heard me mention this book a few times by Matthias Desmet. Uh, it's The Psychology of Totalitarianism. I highly suggest you get it. It's not a really hard read, so something that um, I would encourage you to read and find out more about in greater detail than what you've heard on this podcast. And so I want to um, talk about and kind of review some of the things I've said, uh, but in particular how the mass formations um arise and how fear is a big part of mass formation, sometimes called mass formation uh, psychosis or mass hysteria. And so I want to talk about that as well. Um, so we're going to do a little review and see uh, approximately, it's been about three months since I've last talked about this book. And so we're just going to um, see what, what has changed um, with regards to um, the left in particular um, agents, agencies such as the World Economic Forum um, and WHO and the Democratic Party and the left in general, how they've used um, this idea of free-floating anxiety within a society to create a fertile ground for their mass uh, formation. Uh, again, sometimes called mass hysteria or mass formation psychosis. So we're going to take a look at that. And so as I mentioned, the Dutch farmers are back in the news uh, with more protests uh, just to review again, the government in the Netherlands has decided that they're going to change their agricultural rules, their regulations, and forbid a lot of the nitrogen-based fertilizers um, that are used uh, worldwide, but especially in Europe and especially uh, by Dutch farmers. And so... What the government is being accused of by the farmers is that they want to create an excuse to take their farms, put their farms 
out of business and then take that land and develop it into places, um, housing and whatnot for to take in more uh, economic refugees, economic migrants. And so that is the um, basic scenario, the basic uh, situation there in the Netherlands. So there's a new article out uh, in Rebel News, very good um, uh, source of information, I think. So if you're on, they're on most uh, social media platforms, so you know, it's, it's a good one to subscribe. It's, it's Rebel News, it's mainly to do with um, the British Commonwealth countries, but also, of course, applies to um, the United States and Europe as well, as you can see with, uh, in the case in, with the Netherlands here. And so they did a article, uh, it's called Dutch Farmer Rebellion Rises Again to Protest Radical Government Emissions Policies. And the sub-headline is, The Dutch farmers in the Netherlands converged on Zwitterpark in The Hague on Saturday to protest against the Dutch government's nitrogen emissions policies. Thousands attended the event and several high-profile politicians and commentators spoke on stage to express support for the farmers. And so I'm going to read a little bit of the article to you. It's not really a very long article. So, um, all right, this again is coming from Rebel News. The Dutch farmers in the Netherlands converged on Zwitter Park in The Hague on Saturday to protest against the Dutch government's nitrogen emissions policies. Thousands attended the event and several high-profile politicians and commentators spoke on stage to express support for the farmers. There was a high police presence at the event. The Dutch authorities had also mobilized the military, fearing an escalation and potential violent clashes. You know, why would they expect violent clashes? All they're doing is threatening to put out these farmers out of business. You know, why would that happen? Why would they have to worry about that? Anyhow, um, Jan van Zanen, the mayor of The Hague, had put out a statement last week stating that only 25,000 were allowed to attend the event. That's pretty good. He saying only 25,000 can attend. So that shows you just how big this movement is in the Netherlands. Throughout the day, uh, police attempted to stop tractors and busloads of protesters from traveling to The Hague from around the country. The Dutch government is pushing ahead with radical nitrogen emissions policies with Dutch farmer, which Dutch farmers say will damage their industry. Despite widespread protests last year and several months of back and forth between the farmers and the Dutch government, a mutual agreement on the tackling, on tackling nitrogen emissions hasn't been reached. The government has refused to back down on nitrogen emission targets and enforced 
enforcement of new policies, which has prompted the farmers to resume protests. It is estimated that the proposed policies would force more than 11,000 farms to close and force 17,000 farmers to dramatically reduce their livestock farming. Critics of the Dutch government fear that these policies could irreversibly damage the Dutch farming industry and have a negative indirect effects on global food supply chains. And so that basically in a nutshell describes what they're doing. And so again, I, I encourage you to uh, check uh, Rebel News, pretty good source for a lot of stories that you won't find anywhere else or very many other places on the web. So what the what's happening there is again um, just kind of restate it is that the Dutch the Netherlands the Netherlands government uh, under the heavily heavy influence of the World Economic Forum led by Klaus Schwab um, have decided uh, much like the Sri Lankas before them to abandon the modern methods of farming, which includes using nitrogen-based uh, fertilizers. Um, and so they want to, because they're doing that, and basically it ends up, as I mentioned, like 11,000 farms would have to close as a result of these new regulations. And the other thing is that what the farmers have uh, right, and what it mentions in the article here, is that you know you could do um, you know irreversibly damage the Dutch farming industry and have a negative, indirect uh, effect on the global food supply chain, and that is correct in my estimation. Um, because once you uh, lose uh, farmland, you know you can't you can't get it back. It's very hard to reclaim farmland once it's lost. Because the Dutch um, plan to use this land, um, it's being alleged. I don't know um, how much of it is true, but the critics claim that in the Netherlands, uh, the Dutch government wants to do, seize this land and use it to build housing and other accommodations for migrant workers. And so that is the main accusation, the, the main uh, belief on the part of the Dutch farmers. And that, that's probably, I would say, probably true. And so you know they're not going to keep this as open land. I mean, they're not going to leave the. They're not going to shut down the farms and leave them fallow, and they're not going to turn them into anything else. Um, they're going to build on the lands, and and probably as is the case, is they're going to build accommodations, some sort of accommodations, uh, mainly for migrant workers.
And so that's, um, they're not going to get, once that land, once that farmland is lost, you're not getting it back. And they're not really building uh, a lot of new farmland, you know, not, not like what they have in the Netherlands. Netherlands is one of the best farming regions in the world, particularly in, in Europe, certainly. And it's also where they raise a lot of cattle, apparently. Uh, and that's the thing. They, the WEF and their cohorts are uh, waging war against the cattle industry in particular because they don't think people should eat meat. Them. They want you to eat the bugs, as uh, people like to say. Um, but yeah, they would rather you eat bugs than eat beef, and this is what they're trying to accomplish. They're trying to force this, because again, you know, whether it's farmland or cattle grazing land, once that's um, built on, once that's developed, you're never going to get that land back, and it's not like you can get find someplace else to build new farms. So all of this industry is going to lost. Those farms are going to be lost, probably be lost forever. Now, of course, um, as I mentioned on the podcast before, um, that this some similar thing happened in Sri Lanka not too long ago, and not too distant past. Uh, Sri Lanka also under the influence of of being a slave to ESG scores, trying to boost their ESG scores and get uh, international loans and loans from the International Bank, from the World Bank, in order to uh, appease, basically, the globalists. They decided to eschew the modern methods of farming in their country and go to all organic. And then they want to also do other um, social justice reforms, and that basically um, put the country into a nosedive, and the, and the country went under, and the citizens rebelled, and now they're in the, I guess, in the process of restarting their country. Um, so basically, the WEF and ESG has ruined one country, and now they're going after another. And then this one, of course, is the Netherlands. Also, similar things are happening um, in Canada. You know, of course, under Trudeau, you know, he can't do enough to make his buddies in, you know, Klaus Schwab and the WEF happy. And so he's more than happy to uh, do the same thing and ruin the Canadian farm industry as well. And so, good for these Dutch farmers. They're, a lot of them are back in their tractors. Um, they had a big, you know, protest where they drove their tractors and a lot of civil disobedience sort of things um, that they did. Um, so I think they've scaled back a lot of that under threat of reprisal from law enforcement and military in their country. As I mentioned, uh, the Netherlands was calling in, you know, the military assets to get this under control under the guise of 
you know, keeping tamping down violence. You know, again, you know, you know, why would you be doing anything that would even possibly cause your farmers of all people to act violently against your policies? Why would you even attempt to enact policies that would arrange arrange enrage the farmers of your country? Why would you even do that? But Apparently, the Netherlands government doesn't really care, and so they're perfectly prepared to um, tamp down these protests by force if necessary. They can't, again, you know, still they limited to this particular protest to 25,000 participants, so that's still a pretty big protest. Because um, what they're afraid of, I think, is the they could get uh, hundreds of thousands um, of people, you know, maybe even have a million people um, in mass protests all over the country and really gum up the works, um, something akin to what they did last year and uh, in years prior with regards to this nitrogen ban, this nitrogen regulation in their country. So let's talk about um, what the Dutch farmers are worried about. Obviously, they don't want their farms taken away, um, you know, through regulation or you know being bought out. Now, the Dutch, the the Dutch government is saying that they're going to buy out these farms at a fair price. But the problem is, the Dutch people in the world is never going to get that agricultural production back once it's given up once they get once the Dutch government has those farms in their possession and start building over those farms those farms are not coming back and neither is the production neither is the food that those farms produce uh, neither is that production going to come back either and that's the basic problem here is you know, you're trying to um, you're trying to feed Europe and the rest of the world while you have a crisis on the other major farmland in on the continent, which that you know the being uh, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, and Russia, you know they're all major sources of of farming and uh, particularly of wheat in that in the on the continent. And so while you're having this crisis over here. Um, in Ukraine, you're exacerbating the crisis, the food supply crisis over here in the Netherlands, which makes no sense unless you're just trying to destroy the economy, the agricultural sector. And what happens when you destroy an agricultural sector? Well, people starve. I mean, it's basic logic. You don't have to make any grand logical leap to understand that if you destroy an agricultural sector you cannot feed as many people and again i've i've talked about the wef and the left in particular as being a particularly anti-human movement and this is one of the things that would support that argument you know when you take away people's means to um make food in the best way possible, most effective methods possible, 
you know, you get you got eight billion people on the planet. You know, you can only feed those people by using the most advanced farming methods, agricultural methods available to you. And the WEF, in the name of fighting climate change, so they say, um, more like control, they are using this, you know, they're destroying the agricultural sector so that they can um, allegedly... Um, one could imagine again not mo most not much of a logical leap to suppose that that same government that's telling the farmers not to use the best fertilizer um, they're going to create shortages and then the, the government is going to want to step in to you know do price controls and and stepping in they're going to step up their uh, control over the economy and of course if you can control the food supply of a country and the world you know then you can control just about any anything else that the people that live there do and so that's the basic problem and that's why I'm talking to you about this today and so I encourage you again to and my uns unsolicited uh, commercial for Rebel News, um, good source. It's one I've referred to. You know, if, if you've been following the podcast, you know I, I follow the Rebel News a lot. So um, it's, it's a good source for, for news. So last year... I wrote a series of articles and did a series of podcasts uh, regarding this book, um, The Psychology of Totalitarianism by Matthias Desmet. I highly recommend you read this book. Um, again, it's not a very difficult read. It's, it's a good book. It, it talks about uh, the psychology of totalitarianism in understandable terms. So it's it's a good resource, and it's well, I think it's well researched, and so explains a lot. When you read this book, uh, as I have, you'll see what he's talking about in um, in other things. Now, this the book was written mainly in response to uh, the COVID emergency and. You know a little bit of the hysteria surrounding uh, COVID-19, particularly in 2020 and 2021. Um, but it also talks. It also mentions you know other hysterias. You know how like the uh, fascists in Europe got their start uh, in the early 20th century. And so those, some of those same factors that enabled the, like the fascists and the communists to get their start in the early 20th century, here in the early 21st century, you see some of those factors or and different factors. So that's another thing I want to get into. And so back in December of 2022, I wrote the following. Uh, according to Matthias Desmet in his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, there are four conditions needed for a large-scale mass formation. One, 
generalize loneliness. Two, lack of meaning of life. Three, free-floating anxiety and psychological unease. Four, a lot of free-floating aggression. Leftism is a mass formation. As a mass formation depends on all four of these conditions being met to keep their authoritarianism going. And so that's what I wrote. And I did a whole podcast. I did a whole series of podcasts last year on the topic of mass formations, uh, particularly how they lead to totalitarianism uh, regimes um, such as fascism and communism in the 20th century and things that we're seeing here in the 21st century. And so now I want to explore, you know, is there a new attempt to fuel the underlying anxiety as so to form a new mass formation to replace COVID-19? And then, you know, again, back in December, I did a whole series in November and December I did a whole series based on uh, Matthias Desmond's book and so I want to um, uh, you know about three months later a a quarter of a year later um, explore some of those things that are going on since then Now I think I mentioned in that podcast um, in that particular podcast there was this thing um, the new thing was the quote-unquote tridemic which was the COVID-19, the flu, and other respiratory viruses uh, going around, uh, making people ill. And I suggested back then, and I would suggest to you again, that that was an effort basically to keep the hysteria going. Because the hysteria allowed for people to accept, be more accepting of draconian and totalitarian measures, authoritarianism. And of course, the left tends to favor authoritarianism. And so, since then, since the um, COVID-19 crisis has died down, you know, President Biden has said he's going to end the emergency I think on May 11th of this year, 2023. So we'll see if he really does that because he gave him basically gave himself emergency power to do student loan things with student loans, student loan forgiveness, and things of that nature. That he uh, gave himself long, and he's kept these powers long since really. Uh, COVID has been an actual crisis in the minds of many. He, even he, uh, Joe Biden said that there's no, that the uh, COVID um, pandemic is over. Um, He basically said that. But then he had to walk back his remarks later and his spokespeople walked back his remarks. And now he set the date of May 11th. Now, how do you know, first of all, that the crisis is going to be over on May 11th. Now, this just allows him to do certain things because um, obviously, you know, you don't want to, you know, as Rahm Emanuel said, you know, you don't want a crisis to go to waste, to paraphrase him. Um, and so this is the left, the, the 
uh, Democratic Party of the United States. This 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 was their um, excuse to give themselves emergency power and exercise the authoritarianism um, in order obsessively to control in the name of controlling COVID nineteen. So they had like the mass mandates. The for one of the first things, if you remember, Biden did was he said he was going to have, I think, a 90-day national mandate. He was calling for a national day, uh, 90-day national mask mandate, and that was going to take care of it. And that didn't quite happen um, because by then, you know, people, the Amer- most of the American people were just sick of wearing masks, and there's a lot of evidence to come out and more evidence uh, since then to suggest that um, wearing masks, particularly the mask mandates, didn't really do too much to combat COVID-19. And so, you know, they, the left is losing uh, COVID-19 as a basis for keeping this mass formation going. Now, remember, one of the key ingredients um, for a uh, mass formation is a high degree of free-floating anxiety and psychological unease. Of course, if you have a pandemic, you're afraid that you're going to catch it. It's it's an invisible killer on the loose. Um, You know, that would naturally uh, cause a lot of free-floating anxiety and psychological unease and so now they've they've tried various ways to perpetuate that free-floating anxiety um again back in december i was talking about the tridemic and but also you had the monkeypox scare and then you had a whole series of either covid19 variants or other diseases that they tried to also alarm the public with. Um, And so, but all of that burned out. And so it seems that the left needs something to replace COVID-19 as a source of free-floating anxiety. Now, one thing that happened conveniently, almost um, on cue, is you had Russia's invasion of Ukraine and you had the subsequent, you know, there's interruption of fuel, uh, fuel oil supplies and food because, as you know, uh, Ukraine is a major production of agricultural goods, uh, particularly for Europe, but also for the rest of the world. And so that, you know, in and of itself, if, if you're worried about how you're going to heat your house through the winter, then, of course, that's going to be a cause of free-floating anxiety in society. And so that's one of the things that conveniently, I would say, hit just in time to rescue the, the free-floating anxiety in, in the world. And so one thing I noticed... I don't know if you noticed, uh, maybe you can leave me a comment or uh, answer the, you know, be in the uh, comment section. Um, have you noticed an uptick of kind of 
apocalyptic um, commercials or products. And what I'm talking about is one thing I noticed all of a sudden, uh, last late last year or last sometime last year, you saw advertisements for iodine pills. Now, iodine pills are supposed to be used to combat the effects of radiation sickness. And of course, you and you had, or at least I saw an uptick. Uh, well, you never saw it before, so any you know, saying any would be an uptick. But all of a sudden, I started to see advertisements for iodine pills and other remedies for radiation sickness. And when you start seeing something like that, you kind of wonder, well, does does somebody know something that the rest of us don't? Does the government know something we don't? And so, and of course, also uh, uh, along with that, and not completely unwarranted, I guess, is the idea of World War III. I'm sure if you looked up Google searches and posts, you know, with the subject matter of World War III, I'm sure you would hear see a huge uh, spike since. The, let's say the middle of last year and continuing into this year uh, people searching and talking about online World War 3 and so I think this helps whether uh, intentional or not deliberate or not this nonetheless helps uh, certain people with authoritarian motives uh, keep that free-floating anxiety. So now, in place of COVID-19, you have the threat of nuclear annihilation in World War III, which I don't believe at this point we're going to see a full-fledged nuclear war. Um, not to say that if we're not careful um, how we handle uh, Russia and Ukraine and China, that we couldn't you know, sleepwalk into a World War III situation that could certainly happen. But right now, I don't think there's a high chance. Um, but certainly, if the powers that be, if, like, you know, NATO allies and the United States and the Biden regime in particular, um, would like to keep up those anxiety levels. So, you know, and you don't see too many efforts really making peace talks. Um, China, I guess, did some sort of initiative, uh, went nowhere. Um, really haven't seen too much in the way of uh, establishing a dialogue or peace talks or anything like that, resolving the conflict in Ukraine peacefully. So you really haven't seen too much effort on that and of course President Biden recently visited Ukraine you know ironically you know at the same time you have a major rail disaster in your own country in Ohio you know East Palestine Ohio you have this rail um, leakage of toxic fluids and carcinogenic fluids and you have that whole disaster there at that exact time, while that's going on, instead of going to Ohio, he's going to Ukraine to offer uh, the Ukrainians even more arms and ammunition. And listen, um, I think most people would agree, both on the left and the right, and I touched upon this on, I, 
uh, last podcast that most would agree that the left and the right would like prefer to see the Ukrainians win, you know, be the victors, have a successful outcome, one that favors the Ukrainians uh, against the Russians. And of course, you know, nothing per se wrong with arming the Ukrainians because they were invaded. Uh, their country was invaded. Their 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 national sovereignty was uh, invaded and infringed upon. So it's not like Putin was not you know a bad actor in this case. And so you know uh, the Ukrainians um, and. And the West helping Ukraine is not out of order, but one wonders, you know, how much is too much? You know, how many billions of dollars worth of arms and armament and aid do you give to them? You know, what is the right balance, Uh, particularly when it comes to money? You know, we have, we're sending billions of dollars to the Ukrainians to prop up their government and their government's uh, programs and keeping it keeping it running and keeping their pensions going so we're propping, propping up Ukraine's uh, government um, but we're not really uh, even making an attempt to get the receipts to see how trace how that money was being spent and so there's a lot of speculation that a lot of that money being sent to the Ukraine is just doubling back and finding its way back in the form of donations to the Democrat Party. And, you know, what the evidence is of this, you know, one can speculate, you know, some have speculated that Bitcoin um, has been played a part of that and in that. And so there's a lot of speculation that maybe some of the money being uh, given to Ukrainians being laundered and coming back to the United States and particularly the Democrats in the form of donations to the Democrat Party. And so that's something that I think hopefully we will be investigating a lot uh, further, um, particularly with the new Congress with the GOP in charge of the House now and in charge of spending I think uh, McCarthy and the Republicans really need to uh, clamp down on spending and uh, start demanding receipts for the the money and things we give to Ukraine. So if we're going to be giving large amounts of assistance to Ukraine, um, you know, we need the receipts to back it up to make sure that money is being well spent. And it's not being, as some have alleged, being funneled back into uh, the Democratic Party and Democrat uh, candidates. And so I think it would behoove the Republicans in the House in particular to really um, demand that that money be traced and that any new money going to Ukraine, any new expenditures, you know, in the new budget coming up this autumn when they do their annual budget fight, um, 
you know, they're going to have to demand, you know, every single cent be accounted for and that the Ukrainians, to their best ability, account for the money we give them. We want to know what that money was spent on. If it's spent on government salaries or bullets or missiles or infrastructure or rebuilding buildings or whatever it is, you know, supporting their refugees, whatever it is, um, we want to know where that money is being spent to preclude the, uh, at least the ability to, to dampen the ability of some of that money finding its way back into things other than helping the Ukrainians in their battle against the Russians. And so that would be a, a good idea when we talk about um, future expenditures by the United States in particular going to that country. And, but getting back to the uh, topic at hand, so I mentioned that all of a sudden I see this uptick or just out of nowhere people are selling remedies for uh, nuclear uh, poisoning. Um, and there's really been no nuclear disaster um, for a number of years now. The last one was in, of note, was in Japan. Um, after the tsunami hit and knocked out the nuclear reactors, they had a, a big problem there with uh, radiation, um, you know, controlling the radiation levels in, uh, I think it was the Fukushima reactor um, a few years ago, you may remember. And so that was the last major nuclear problem of note. And so we know it's not because there's an uptick of nuclear problems in the world, although there are some in U Ukraine that um, can be a problem local to the Ukrainians and some other parts of Europe, but, you know, you, so that's, that can explain the uptick of iodine, the sales of iodine pills, and now you're seeing sales of gas masks, and this is before the train derailments that happened in Ohio and other places where toxic chemicals were spilled. And so it's interesting, you know, are we seeing, you know, you know, it's kind of a chicken and, and the egg effect, which came first? Are people taking advantage of an existing uh, anxiety in the public over something, you know, World War Three, and they're just capitalizing on that market or are they causing helping to cause and perpetuate that fear and anxiety particularly of like World War III and nuclear Armageddon so that's one thing um, also and another thing that even before that predates the COVID-19 crisis of course was the climate change crisis, so-called climate change crisis, climate change alarmism, as I like to call it. And that was something that gets ordinarily sane people to do insane things, like um, the people in the Netherlands calling for uh, regulations against modern farming methods and using nitrogen farming 
uh, fertilizer, nitrogen-based fertilizers. And of course, you have the Dutch farmers in their protests there. And so you have, in the name of uh, the climate change alarm, alarmism, you have people acting what I and I think many other people would consider irrationally. I mean, just look at what happened in Sri Lanka. Um, you know, I mentioned on the podcast a number of times what happened in Sri Lanka. They abandoned their modern farming methods and went totally organic, uh, abandoned the use of nitrogen-based fertilizers or at least chemical, you know, ammonia-based fertilizers in favor of organic fertilizers. And that basically the result was people starved because they did uh, this foolish immolation of their agricultural sector in the name of high ESG scores driven on by the WEF and Klaus Schwab and the like. And so you you had that as example of irrational, some would say, actions being taken uh, in response to um, probably irrational fears regarding, in this case, the uh, climate or climate change. And so that's another thing. But it seems like the left, you know, the, the climate change alarmism wasn't doing enough for people to just sell out and do what the left, you know, follow the authoritarianism uh, uh, plan for the globe, for the, for the planet that they want. And so they that they didn't have enough of that to control enough people uh, in enough ways, and the COVID nineteen crisis has been dying off and petering out. So they needed a replacement. One of those replacements, as I mentioned, was the fear of nuclear Armageddon, and of course there is a rational fear of you know. Um, energy prices skyrocketing, particularly in, you know, the winter months, you know, for um, oil, you know, for heat, home heating oil, you know, what are they going to use? And so you have that. And so there's some of these symptoms I would call like the iodine pills and the gas masks being sold. Um, these are symptoms that may be a perpetuation may serve either deliberately or accidentally or coincidentally um, to keep the free-floating anxiety uh, going that a um, you know anybody with authoritarian goals um, would need and so you have that of course you you have you know, the climate change alarmism hasn't gone away. Um, you know, they've doubled down on that. Now they're attacking you know, our, our foreign methods. And so what is that going to cause? Well, that's going to cause un unrest. You know, you have the protests in the Netherlands and other places too. But mainly, most acutely, uh, in the Netherlands. You know, they want, you know, if you have civil unease, civil strife, 
you know, that causes people to look for an answer. Because once you have enough generalized fear in a population, people start looking for an answer. Now, in the, in the case of the 20th century, they look for it um, with the fascists, in the case of Germany and Italy, and also Spain, maybe to a lesser degree. And in Eastern Europe and other places, a lot of Europe, but particularly in Eastern Europe, they they used communism. So they used this uh, generalized fear surrounding war. You know, they had just had World War One, or they were leading in the World War One, and then they had World War One, and then there was general fear, um, general anxiety regarding war, and particularly in Europe, and. Also, you had um, the economic downturn, particularly in uh, places like Germany, uh, the, the places that lost World War One. You know, they had a, a severe economic downturn, and so you have all these people um, with anxiety. They're looking for a solution, and unfortunately, Hitler and Mussolini gave them. In one case, a solution of fascism. In other cases, you know, Stalin and Lenin uh, and the Marxists gave them another solution in other areas called socialism or communism. So a lot of people went with communism. But both are turned out to be two different forms of authoritarianism. You know, a lot of people always think about the you know the first thing they think about you know when you hear the word totalitarianism and authoritarianism you think about the fascists and the jackbooted thugs of Italy and of German you know pre World War Two and during World War Two um, and then only later do a lot of people think about Stalin and you know the six million people he um, cause to die, you know, the whole Holocaust that happened in Europe, particularly in Ukraine, basically, you know, the genocide of the Ukrainians by Stalin, you know, that was all in response to uh, mass formation uh, psychosis, you know, mass, mass hysteria, that people have this fear they don't know what their government's going to do. They don't know where they're, you know, if they're going to be enslaved by the communists. And so that's what happened with the fascists in Italy. They were afraid that all of their land, all their resources were going to be taken by the communists. And so Mussolini stepped in and says, well, we're going to prevent that. Me and my fascist buddies, we're going to prevent that. And we're going to and we're going to band together in our fascist party. And of course, that's what they did. And they did that. I think they ruled for like 15, 20 years. So, in night, you know, from 1927 to, I think, 1944, I think. You know, the fascists ruled in, in Italy and then also in Germany for a similar period of time. And then you had, on the other side, you had... You know, the authoritarianism, of course, the Tsar was like the ultimate totalitarian government in Russia. 
and you know he ruled basically with an iron fist even though he tried to make reforms but it was too much too little too late um, and so you had the people afraid of their own government and you have you also have this industrial revolution happening at the same time people are moving into the cities you know it's the rise of urban population particularly in Europe all over Europe and America but mainly Europe you had an agrarian society that was basically serfdom uh, up until then in Russia and now they had a very steep period of industrialization that caused a lot of anxiety people moving into the city um, just a whole lot of things for people to worry about back then and in that case they they were told they were being told that the capitalist is going to take take the place of the czar and and the landowners and the bourgeoisie in Europe and they were going to replace the czar and the kings and whatever in their feudal system they were just going to trade one feudalism for another and people were worried about being slaves and being treated unfairly by the capitalists and the rapid industrialization of the early 20th century and the late uh, 19th century so a lot of anxiety thrown on that and so in, in the case of Eastern Europe they decided to um, invest their energy their anxiety um, so you have someone like Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky telling you we're gonna take care of this for you just follow us and see so you have the evil capitalist and you know, we're going to save you from these capitalist oppressors that you're that have been the cause of all your problems and so a lot of them went to socialist route as I mentioned other people because of the communists and for fear of the communists they latched on to the fascist in response to their perceived and actually kind of real uh, communist threat in a lot of Europe at the time and so you and you had other economies like in France that and in uh, Britain that were a little bit better off and so the fascism and the socialism never never really caught on as much as they did in Eastern Europe and Italy and Germany and the, you know the, the former or the losers of the First World War so they didn't have that so they didn't have to deal with that so that kind of would explain why countries like France even though they're pretty socialist and also uh, Britain didn't go quite the to the extreme as their brothers did in Eastern Europe and that was all there's a whole lot of factors that went into that and so we're seeing that now again to kind of bring this full circle um, you had COVID, you had uh, climate change alarmism, and that's what people are worried about now. And a lot of people are, are particularly on the left, they're seeking this, you know, leftist messiah that's going to take them to their workers' paradise, their this utopic society that they're trying to been they've been trying to form since forever, but particularly since the early 20th century. 
and so that's what they're doing and so now when you look at social media and in the news and you see the next big thing you know ukraine being one of those big things and covid and now you have a series of accidents happening in uh, the united states with you know train derailments all of a sudden there's a whole uh, slew of them and you have all these things that all helps whether intentional or not um of creating the fear and fear is one of the key ingredients of a mass formation and so once you understand that then you learn to look for it in other places and so when they talk about the next big thing usually what you're we're talking about is what it ends up being is some new scare so you know, climate change covid could be some other disease could be world war three could be fear of uh war with china or you know an emp attack um or any of that nature um it's you just have to remember that fear is a very useful tool to the authoritarians and the totalitarians um that's how they did it in china that's how they do it in north korea that's how they did it in italy and in soviet union and in germany last century um so that's how they did it before and you know they're building upon what works and what works is fear and anxiety and some savior being announced that's going to take care of you and solve your problems and then once people get caught up into that mass formation if you say you know what maybe the masking and and the vaccine mandates maybe that wasn't such a great idea in retrospect and maybe keeping the kids out of class wasn't such a great idea and it takes a whole lot because people have been relying on this mass formation that they've become part of as a bomb for the psychological fears and that helps them deal psychologically with their problems and their fears and anxieties and so they rebel violently sometimes against anybody who would suggest they're going to cancel you if you suggest that maybe covid you know masking mandates weren't a great idea um so that's something to look out for in the future remember fear is a tool of would be and actual oppressors and so I want to leave you with that with that thought for today uh I want to thank you for watching and listening to the LR podcast and please follow uh, libertyrelearn.com online follow liberty relearned on Facebook and at LR podcast on Getter and follow me JP Mac on Parler and as always um till next time uh stay healthy happy and free